0: A lot of the newer generation of farmers, I think, see both. They see the healthiness of the lifestyle in that, um, you know, you're connected to land, connected to place, which has quite a bit of social value as well. Uh, as, and they see the necessity of a farm business being financially viable. And I think the combination of those two things is, uh, is proving to be productive.
1: Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers. To share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path, I'm your host, Jen Colby. folks this is Jen um, I just wanted to open today's podcast by saying thank you thank you for everything all the liking supporting telling your friends the sharing the comments folks are sending um, and the supporting in general so every it's been fantastic so far um, thank you so much it's it's why I'm still here because this seems to be of use to you all and I'm I'm very excited and very um, honored to be part of that so anyway, starting with a thank you is always a good way to start. Today's episode does not feature um, a first-generation rancher or a farmer, um, and I'm not always going to bring in folks who are first-gen folks. I think that there's a lot we can learn from um, people who are service providers, people who are um, either farmers, uh, you know, multi-generational folks who went away and came back, or um, folks who are... Uh, multi-generational who have learned a lot that could be really useful to share with um, first-timers or folks returning or folks who just generally want to better understand how things are going out in the world and how that might affect um, a person who decides to, well, chooses to farm. That's the whole point. So today's guest um, is Tip Hudson from the University of Washington Extension, and I met him at a conference um, a few months ago, and I was really struck by some of the things he talked about, and we'll get into that. But um, he talked about the way that we talk with each other and the way that we learn, and what happens when we when we talk deeply and speak speak deeply. And that just struck me as something that um, is entirely a new world for first gen folks to be trying to get into farming um, with a lot of pros and cons around technology and um, other opportunities that are out there. So here's Tip Hudson, and I hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: Uh, i'm tip hudson i work for washington state university extension as a range and livestock management extension specialist and uh, started the art of range podcast about three years ago some colleagues and i had received some money from uh, one of the climate hubs out of montana to do some short film documentaries on ranchers that were manage- managing for what we called uh, rangeland resiliency and you know this could be ecological economic social resiliency and my job as part of this uh, documentary team was to interview the ranchers you know when they're on camera and <clears throat> they're often pretty nervous uh, but the objective was to you know kind of follow the rabbit trails like you're asking about different topics and when something interesting comes up you have to be prepared on the fly to push a little bit further into that thing that seemed interesting. And as a colleague of mine said one time, uh, oftentimes the rabbit trails are the main point. <laughs>
1: totally. You can't
0: anticipate the things that, that may come up and that might prove to be the most interesting thing that you find out. So I, I found that I really enjoyed interviewing these ranchers. And, and then separately, while we were traveling around uh, to the different locations on this project, we got to thinking that it seems there's a podcast for everything under the sun and I had just never gone looking to see if there was something out there on rangeland science and so a guy listened to all kinds of stuff when I'm on the road in fact that's almost the only time that I have time to listen to things like a podcast Uh, but most of its personal interest and not so much professional development so I went looking to see if I could find any podcasts on rangeland science, and really didn't find anything. There's animal science podcasts, and there are, uh, you know, places like Ohio State uh, that you know that produce a podcast, but it's really focused on animal nutrition, animal husbandry, uh, beef quality assurance. Really, nothing that was you know what I considered to be uh, useful rangeland ecology and livestock management. So I, I uh, wrote and received a competitive grant from the Western Center for Risk Management Education. I always have to say that slowly <clears throat> to, do, to do a podcast for about, uh, the funding was for 18 months. And we outlined a, a series of uh, general topics that I thought would be useful to ranchers and to natural resource professionals. And, and this was one of, I think, uh, the main motivating factors for me was that I I had the conviction both professionally and personally that this rangeland science that I've been chasing for the last twenty five years is really useful to ranchers, and I often find in visiting with ranchers uh, that there are some things that that I consider to be fundamental that often are not known, uh, and and I really wanted to put these two things together because the direct experience and the you know the uh, the lived out knowledge from years of observation by the ranchers is tremendously valuable and I think often that doesn't get melded with the more formal rangeland science and and I'm putting the two together I feel is is really powerful and in fact you know we uh you know we would say that a that 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 a science is a body of knowledge to be acquired and and art is the application of that body of knowledge. That's really a classical definition of those two terms. And, and so we say that somebody practices medicine or they practice law. Uh, and, and I think we are practicing rangeland science. And I actually think that it, it fits that pretty well because it's, it's nothing like, uh, you know, the old joke that it's not rocket science. It's way more complicated than that. <laughs> you know, rocket science is True. just straight up math.
1: Right, right.
0: But but Rangeland science is this you know crazy complex combination of living and non living things and people, and it's not simple at all. Uh, and really, I guess this is the other uh, the other big uh, motivation behind the podcast, and specifically you know, what I consider to be a long form audio journalism podcast. Uh, the episodes that we do are. Uh, Typically, approximately an hour now the other conviction is that it it takes it takes mental labor to do to practice the art of rangeland science well mm. and we live in a period of time when people are not doing as much mental labor as they used to uh, people have difficulty being a master of their attention and and stringing thoughts together uh, and, and in fact uh, one philosopher said that education is the science of relations, and literally you know making associations between pieces of information that that you've come across. Uh, and so one of the objectives with with the art of range podcast is to is to give people a diverse diet of stuff. I think it was Fred Provenza, who was one of my favorite interviews. This was, I think episode number four. I
1: think it was because i just listened to it
0: oh good yeah that was one of my favorite interviews yeah he talked about him in one of his articles talking about animal diet selection about metabolism and catabolism catabolism is is breaking down all of the stuff that, that you eat into its simpler parts and then metabolism is the body's process of putting that all back together into what it needs uh, but in order to get, in order to be able to put back together what it needs, you have to give it useful stuff in the first place. Uh, and that's, if anybody knows Fred Provenza, that's been one of his life goals is to get people to feed both animals and themselves totally. useful stuff that can be reassembled into what we need. So the idea with the, with the podcast was to really cover a diverse range of topics, Uh pun intended (laughs) so that people would have all these individual pieces and that you know you can um, that I think one goal too is to persuade people and not just inform we had uh, years ago when I first started with WSU we did some uh, large scale a, a large conference on water quality and livestock management and we had a guy come over from Uh, Rutgers, who is a demographer, and he said people, scientists in particular, tend to think that if we just, if everybody had the same information I have, they (laughs) would make the same decisions that I would make with that information. And he said, that's never the case, never been the case, never will be the case. That's not how human beings operate. And that we have to get over this idea that all we need to do is feed people information, because information is not knowledge. And knowledge even is still a step or two short from, you know, from wisdom and, and action that makes sense in the real world. And so uh, I want to promote people doing real, useful mental labor. And the focus of the podcast is on people whose livelihoods depend on making good decisions, you know, in a living landscape. Uh, where and, and I think this is one of the unique things about rangeland based livestock production i really think that it is one of the only methods of food and fiber production that um, by default relies on as few agronomic inputs as possible the idea is that you're trying to leave a natural plant community a natural plant community and still derive some human value from it so that you really can have your cake and eat it too where we're producing meat and fiber in a place that's still producing wildlife habitat open space aesthetic values you know clean air clean water uh hopefully the whole nine yards and and of course the million dollar question maybe the billion dollar question is is how do we do that well and Mm. uh, that question is is what we're trying to get at with the Art range podcast
1: totally and I, i i i i love that um emphasis on helping people make better decisions. I, I feel like that is, um, we can't unilaterally, I bump up against the terminology prescription, you know, like pres- prescribe grazing. I've always sort of had a little discomfort with that term as mm. if a one size fits all, as if, you know, you can, um, you can make all your discre- grazing decisions based on a, a, an Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> um, it's a great place to start. I, I love that as a tool, but it's it's not necessarily where we. It's not going to answer every question every day, and it's that background knowledge and synthesizing it all together that. Um, I, I really appreciate because I think that we do make better decisions when we have, not just more information, but more context. Yeah. Uh, to make those to make those decisions, and I wanted to read you a quote from you. <laughs> <laughs> Not to make you uncomfortable at all. Um, so I, I first met you at the National Grazing Lands um, uh, conference and uh, uh, you know, um, a few months ago. And um, I loved this quote of yours, your presentation, because it was about the importance of deep conversation. Mm. And I loved the quote, conversation counters pathological distraction. And how we're moved by action, like we're moved by action and we're moved by emotion and we make these decisions and we're so distracted um, yeah. by so many things and being able to sit and have a deep conversation about things and take those rabbit trails really does give us that, some of that context, I think, I hope. Um, I just love that you said that. You know, it's it's um, I thought I thought that you really hit the nail on the head with that one.
0: Yeah, this has largely come from just personal interest reading that I've done uh, over the last ten years, probably. But you know, this this idea that the human brain is plastic has been known for a long time, but we're I think we're seeing the effects of people's brains being shaped by a new medium uh there's a pretty famous book by neil postman titled amusing ourselves to death i think he i think the first publication of it was in 1985 and it sounds like a uh sort of whimsical title but it's quite a serious book and he makes the case that uh you know we we think of all of the technology that we use as uh Technology, you know, a, a a machine that does something for us, uh, but he makes the case that that uh, we really made technology into a, a medium mm. and not just a machine, and that a medium generates a social and intellectual environment that that really shapes uh, how we think, not just not just what we think, and. You know, this is, I think this is coming true. There was a a former executive for both Microsoft and Apple, Linda Stone, who has written about uh, this idea that the pattern of thought that's characteristic in people that were formed in this digital age as continuous partial attention and post multitasking behavior. Uh,
1: um, Are we truly post multitasking behavior? (laughs) Well, I think it it it. is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well some people have said that multitasking really isn't it multitasking is a myth that what you're actually doing is context switching really quickly yes. and and that fast context switching has a mental cost uh, not just in the in the weariness that it takes to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth but also in the in the quality of what we're accomplishing you know during the brief time that we're in one of those contexts and so there's some, you know, some pretty uh, high-profile folks who have argued that the, in the next 50 years it will be an attention economy, where the people who um, succeed in that economy will will be the ones who can be a master of their own attention. <laughs> Coming back to conversation, you know, the yeah. this is called Hebb's rule, the idea that uh, cells that fire together. Wire together. And when we take all of our communication and entertainment and everything else through a digital medium, it, it changes our thinking uh, because it's actually making physical changes in our brain. You know, this is no longer a, a, a niche idea, this is pretty well established. Uh, one of the persons who's been really influential in my thinking was Sherry Turkle. She's a psychologist. Um, a clinical psychologist who works for the for MIT for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and she's written multiple books about uh, the pathologies that result from this immersion in a a digital medium and that's kind of where that phrase came from uh, that it's that conversation counters this pathological distraction because it's one of the few things we do that causes us if we're doing it well or doing it right to single task and to not be switching context and to stay in one thing for a significant period of time. Uh, and, and you see what it feels like when that doesn't happen, when you're in a conversation with somebody and they're constantly going back to check their phone to see if they've got a text message or just a second, I'll just respond to that real quick. Totally,
1: you're like, but I'm right here. And they come back five yeah. minutes later Yes. <laughs> and the conversation's about? gone. Totally.
0: Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's so I I like the idea of, you know, a long-form podcast um because I really I, it, most people listen to it when they're driving and interestingly enough, yeah. driving is one of the things that people self-report as being one of the most satisfying activities that they take part in. I think for the same reason. It's an activity that that is um you know, you're your brain and your body are unified doing the same thing at the same time as mm-hmm. long as you're not trying to text while you're driving <laughs> and and we find it uniquely satisfying and i think that's just part of how we're hardwired uh, other philosophers have called these things focal practices meaning things that again unify your body and your brain where you're doing one thing and And those things tend to have a threshold of effort where it takes some work to get into it. But then once you're into it, you find it satisfying, like reading or woodworking or going for a walk where, you know, you're not distracted on your walk. You're attending to your surroundings. Uh, And I think we can well, I think we can accomplish some of that with a podcast that both provides useful information, but also provokes people to assemble those pieces of information into, you know, actionable, um, knowledge and wisdom and counter distraction at the same time.
1: Totally. Um, and I, and I suspect there is also a connection in with physical movement that, I mean, just Mm -hmm. sort of doing routine tasks where we've got a little bit of autopilot really lets our brains go, and get deep into what we're hearing or what we're thinking and the context and the connections that we're making because it's a moving meditation essentially it's you know mm-hmm. that's that's what a walk and a and a good podcast can do is so oh yeah I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious do you do you feel like this is a natural audience to have a deep conversations with because ranchers and farmers aren't necessarily sitting in front of their computers all the time so they're they're a little less affected um, by the electronics in the world or do you, do
0: you i think like- that's partly true i, I think yeah. partly that shift came later for example yeah. uh, i know a lot of ranchers who never participated in the desktop pc era you know they they might have had a cell phone but the cell phone was just a a phone that made phone calls and never really did computers. Uh, But most of them now have a smartphone, you know, so they, they skipped over uh, the desktop computing phase and went straight to the smartphone phase. And, and I think uh, that is beginning to have a negative effect on, on most people ranchers included, but they were, they were slower to the party. So maybe the damage is not quite so severe yet.
1: I don't but know. I do. I've had chats with a couple that have taken Facebook off their phones because they found it distracting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, other other sorts of social media or other, you know, sometimes they've taken their emails off their phones, too. I'm not sure that's always a good idea, but maybe not. Um, you know, they're hard to get sometimes, too.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that there's uh, the the potential for some for deeper thought there. And I, and I see that in a lot of ranchers. Uh, you know, I've, I, I think nearly everybody's had the experience where you go for a walk when you're not trying to do something else or you're driving and not listening to a podcast or the radio. And uh, it's not until you've done that for a little bit of time that ideas start coming into your mind or, you know, the, the classic example of somebody's best idea comes to them while they're in the shower. That's because you know you're you're not able to do something else like read the news or read a book or listen to a podcast or you know whatever else when you're in the shower. And if you just leave your brain alone for five minutes, it starts doing some useful things and we never give it the chance to do that anymore.
1: No, that's a real challenge. Um, and there's a yeah, there's a lot that we're bombarded by now. And some of that's external and some of it's internal. Like, I, right. I, I recently, I, I shouldn't say recently, recently, but over the last few years have, um, I sort of dropped a reading habit. You know, I, I read a lot for a while. Um, I read a lot growing up and then I just went through a period of like 10 years where I, I didn't read a lot and it was really hard for the first few months to get back into reading. Um, not reading a magazine, not reading something on my phone, but actually reading um, books again. And it's like we have to retrain yeah. ourselves when we get out of that habit.
0: Now, there's a <clears throat> there's a famous article uh, by Nicholas Carr, who's one of my favorite authors. Uh, Nicholas Carr wrote a book titled The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And that was one of the first books that um, got me onto this topic. But I actually got there because he wrote... Uh, kind of an executive summary of the book in the Atlantic, titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And that article went viral. Uh, but he, he opens up the article by describing his growing inability to just get lost in a book. <clears throat>
1: yeah. Yeah. He,
0: he said... Uh, He said over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it most strongly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I would spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And he goes on to describe why he thinks that is which is essentially immersion in the internet to do the task of writing but it it changes it literally changes the the process of thinking and writing
1: yeah that's (laughs) that's like really serious stuff i mean it's not it's not intended to to you know i didn't bring up this topic necessarily to be a downer about it but i actually think it's really helpful for us to um to think about the value of long periods of concentration on things what that's going to get us in the future what it gets us now how we can use it to make better decisions um
0: and i actually think it's a hopeful it, it does sound like a uh, a depressing message but i think one of the groups as you mentioned that has the most hope for not succumbing to being totally rewired by by this new age are farmers and ranchers Uh, because no matter how connected they are they're still spending a significant amount of their time connected with the real world and real living things and doing doing tasks that require engagement with uh, the, the physical and biological world and i think that has tremendously positive benefits for our brain
1: it has a grounding effect literally (laughs) yeah i think that's a good term for it yeah for sure yeah i mean it's kind of it's kind of an amazing thing um uh those of us in this world and out in in the inside outside worlds uh we live in the places that other folks have to get away to um to be able to capture uh you know to capture a little piece of of what we already experience, and um, and just as an, I mean just as a simple example of that, um, we have a, a, a rental um, yurt on the back of our farm, and so we do farms we host farm stays, and um and there is cell service at the yurt. There's not Wi-Fi, um, so people come and. They can't see, you know, they can't see our house. It it feels like they're very far away and the people, what they look like when they come in on a Friday and what they look like when they leave on a Sunday are like completely different people. Mm -hmm. And it has been just transformative to see people go through that process. And I'm like, so where you're at on Sunday is where I feel like I'm at a lot more of the time, not all the time, but. And it, I think it has a lot to do with outside, fewer distractions, mm-hmm. um, time to think. It's a space. Like when we leave our brains alone for five minutes, think of all the cool things that yeah, come out of it. Yeah, they
0: do something useful. Now in Sherry Turkle's book, um, her last book, Reclaiming Conversation, uh, which is a response to her previous book, which was titled Alone Together, describing people being you know together in the same space, but, but alone because they're all lost in their... Digital devices while they're together, and you know she describes research on how that, how how conversation is, uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively affected just by the presence of a smartphone on the table in between two people who are talking to each other, not even using the smartphone. Uh, it it really changes things. So reclaiming conversation, she goes through some examples of situations where people's brains have been helpfully rewired by disconnection uh, and specifically mentioned some youth camps like a high school summer camp where where the kids are not allowed to have their digital devices any of them for a period of you know a week two weeks sometimes longer camps and uh, the way the kids report feeling after having spent that amount of time totally disconnected from the digital world is really um, tremendously positive in terms uh, they they feel unbelievably good in several specific ways after having done that uh, and and that's also encouraging I think I'm definitely not anti-technology I've been an early adopter all of my life I I like computers you know I spend my life as what Peter Drucker called a knowledge worker uh, and I regularly disconnect to do other things. Uh, so I'm not anti-technology. I just think we have to be pretty deliberate about preventing it from changing us in ways that are negative.
1: Totally. Totally. So so just to switch tracks, did, did you grow up on a, on a ranch or did you come from um, a production family or no?
0: Yeah, sort of. I grew up in northern Arkansas in the Ozarks, and we had a family property that we called a farm, but it was about 600 acres of Mostly forest. And then we had some river bottom pasture, uh, maybe 100 or 150 acres of river bottom pasture, and, and had some cows. Uh, the family business was a nursing home. And my great grandfather, who started the nursing home, really enjoyed doing cows on the side, but doing cows on the side was never the primary money maker. Uh, nevertheless, that is where I grew up. I grew up in that context. And I think that was part of why. I like rangeland ecology. I like this idea of um, having cows and wildlife in the same space, or at least adjacent to each other, even if it wasn't the same space. Um, but I I think that that was, it, it felt like having Red Wendell Berry some now, I feel like it's an example of what he describes as the way agriculture used to be, where you took, you know, the places that were, what we used to be called arable land, you know, were chunks of ground that were particularly rich soil and you would farm those little chunks of rich soil, but they were usually patches inside of a larger landscape that still included a natural plant community, along with all the diversity that's native to, you know, different uh, soil types and, you know, geographic context. So on our, you know, we had, as I mentioned, river bottom pastures that, regularly flooded and brought in new sediment and those are the places where you had rich soils that did a good job supporting grass you know with the second you climb out of those bottoms onto the hills you have uh you know s- sandstone outcrops and different kinds of soils that supported trees but don't do so well when you plant something there besides trees yeah. uh, and i think you know retaining some of that heterogeneity um is is useful in lots of different ways socially and agriculturally and ecologically
1: oh totally i think so too diversity is all (laughs) um so you've talked to a lot of ranchers over the over the last few years i'm curious um Have most of them been multi generational folks? Have some of them been, you know, first generation folks? Like, what do you, what do you see in terms of trends of folks that you've had on on your show, and and also where you see regenerative range, well managed range? Where's it Where's it going? Mm. Who are, Who are the Who are the ranchers out there that that you're seeing?
0: Yeah, I think we actually have a quite a diverse mix. Of all of those things, Um, there's a lot of, I feel like today compared to 20 years ago, when I started doing range work professionally, I see a lot, a lot more young ranchers and by young, I mean, you know, 45 or less, my age or less. I think there's a lot of those out there and there weren't 20 years ago. And I think that's a combination of things. I think it's in some cases, um, effective succession planning that has successfully transitioned, you know, a, a truly functional, sustainable, economically sustainable uh, ranch business to a, to the next generation. Uh, and this is this is a useful change, um, not just in that succession planning is happening, but that it's happening, I think, earlier on in the in the aging process, you know, where it used to be pretty common that you had <clears throat> a 65 year old man who's still taking orders from his 85 year old dad, who's, you know, still runs the place. Uh, they both do the work, but, you know, there really was no, there was no shift of authority or, uh, you know, a transition to new decision making on the part of the younger generation. And I think that's happening much more effectively now uh, but for a lot yeah, of reasons. Like-
1: I was going to say do you think that that's a, a cultural shift that it's it's okay to talk about some of this stuff where it didn't feel like it was okay to talk about it 20 years ago or do you think there's Yeah,
0: I think things? it partly is. Yeah, I'm not sure you know the that generation that is now almost gone was the World War II generation that grew up during the depression uh you know many of them truly pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and just worked their fingers to the bone and made it go and I I think mentally it was difficult to let go of that and let somebody they also many of them had the conviction uh, that they didn't want their kids to work as hard as they did and you know that's a double-edged sword one side of it is that you know they truly did do a good job of providing oftentimes solid businesses whether you know ranch businesses or um, you know what we think of as town businesses they did a good job of building those but maybe not such a good job of they did the work, and it was their baby, and they were prepared to hand it off when they died, but but not until they died. And I think that was pretty common. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of first generation farmers, as you've mentioned, that um, that have a, a, a passion for agriculture that they came to on their own, and sort of like the World War II generation have you know, built that up themselves instead of having it handed to them. I think there's an awful lot of that that is useful.
1: So have you interviewed some of those folks too in the the course of your podcast?
0: I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if I've done very many. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to go back and, and look I just haven't thought about interviewees in those categories before. So it doesn't oh, stand definitely. out in my, <laughs> in my head.
1: <laughs> no, that's all right. That's just the filter that I'm looking at everything through these days. It doesn't have to be everybody's filter.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think so. there's also, you know, depending on how we define first-generation farmers and ranchers, uh, I think there's a lot of farmers and ranchers who didn't have a successor that didn't have an heir that wanted to take it over. And so they, they may have, uh, handed it off to somebody, but the person they handed off to is a first-generation rancher. They didn't grow up with the person that owned the farm for the first 50, 60 years. Uh, and so the person who's taking over is new, but they're not necessarily, um, they're new, but it's not a new business.
1: Well, are there lessons being shared from the experienced folks to the new folks? and And I wonder what some of those are. Um, you know, if those are relations, if, if they're just sales, you're on your own, or if they're mm-hmm. mentoring situations, or, you know, I'll be here, you can lease it for a while, or I'll tell you everything I know, because I don't have a successor. Like, do you see, do you see any of that sort of happening? The, the younger, older mentoring, guiding?
0: Yeah, I think that is happening. And as uh, interestingly, as a number of demographers have pointed out there's a there's a connection between say the 1 and 3 generation that is oftentimes really productive and really positive where a grandfather is mentoring a granddaughter as opposed to you know the the parent mentoring one of their children and i think there's a, an awful lot of of that going on uh, it seems to avoid some of the conflict that's inherent in a parental relationship you know mm-hmm. whether it's been handled well or handled poorly, there's just some there's some natural um, limitations that are there that aren't there with grandparents. And so I think there's a lot of that going. I also think there's some mentoring going in the direction as well from the first generation of folks that have uh, you know maybe rediscovered things that are useful, and they're teaching that to the older generation. And I think many of the older generation would say that that is the case as well. I think that's not just... <laughs> me offering some wishful thinking i think that's i think that is happening
1: do you have any any examples of what that what that might be what, what's, yeah what's, i'm trying what's to think going? of an example i can think about what might go older generation to younger about the land about animal husbandry about some of the sort of more traditional things but i'm curious right?
0: you know oftentimes when you're when you are hiring somebody for a job you almost prefer to have somebody that doesn't have prior knowledge in the job so that so that they're a blank slate and they can be trained on what to do. And uh, I think some of that is the case, particularly with say animal handling, where uh, a, a new generation that didn't grow up handling cattle in a particular way has the ability to, to learn something fresh that is um, more useful than the received tradition <laughs> that got handed down. I think that's, that's one example.
1: It totally makes sense. I think about it Just see that's the kind of thing that seems so logical. Temple Grandin was out there in the world, you know, the entire time that, that I've been doing this. And mm-hmm. so there's not a, you know, there's, there's not a, a, a non-humane handling not, not, that we can't all do that, and you know, fall down and and make things less humane than we would like them to be. But, um, but that's always been part of the conversation as long as I've been farming. So I feel like I didn't have to unlearn anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that one I feel like is maybe a bigger deal than it's been given credit for, uh, namely because there are. I I think it's not uncommon to have um, kids that are my age who are choosing not to take over the family farm or the family ranch because they associate all of the day-to-day work of ranch life with, uh, with stress, specifically because of animal handling. And so, you know, these low stress methods are not just low stress on the animals they're low stress on the people that are involved in well as well right. and and that's resulting in in some people like that third generation down to choose to either come back or or stay on the ranch um, because it's not it's not full of interpersonal conflict as a result of uh, bad handling practices so I, I think that it ties even back into succession planning um, you know, succession planners, estate planners often say that fair is not equal and equal is not fair, <laughs> and that you know people shouldn't have this idea that they need to split up a family business and property and assets, you know, into equal pieces for all of the heirs. Um, we we've done actually done it in Washington State a lot of workshops from the ties to the land curriculum. I don't know if you've seen that before, but it mm. I think it was a joint effort between Oregon State University and the Austin School of Business, if I'm recalling correctly, but it's a, a really, it was designed for small forest landowners, uh, but works really well for any land-based business, you know, where it's a, a business that's asset rich and cash poor and tends to be multi-generational. And they do a really good job of healthy, helping people think through uh, why you should choose a single successor or, you know, to not be stuck in splitting up the farm and, and handing it off to all of your children. One, because it doesn't work. Two, because there's an economy of scale. And if you break it up into a bunch of parts, now it's not a working business anymore. Um, but they really get at some of these social aspects of uh, and and provoke conversations inside of a family and that tends to be the thing that that doesn't happen you know it's stereotypical and common the stereotype is accurate where oftentimes nobody knows what's going to happen with the farm until until grandpa dies dad dies right and then everybody finds out you know here's what he wrote and now we are going to fight about it for the next five years to figure out what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think a lot of that is being broken partly because of communication that's being forced by the younger generation who says, you know, we we need to talk about this because it matters and God's not making more land and you know, once this is broken up into 20s, it doesn't ever go back and we need to keep it together. And I I think there's a lot of that happening right now. And I think it's really positive.
1: I think so too. I think I'm I'm very um, pleasantly. Very, I I I feel um, this is optimism again in a good way. It's you know I feel like um, the the motivation of younger people to talk about this stuff and to um, be willing to sit with uncomfortable conversations with folks who you know older generations who may or may not be comfortable talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking, I mean, and, and for good or ill, you know, if sometimes I'm seeing it when, um, you know, when the younger generation goes away to, they might go away to college, they might go to ag college, they might not, you know, two or four year or, or otherwise, and they come back with all these ideas and, um, that they also may be coming back with student loans. They have things they have to pay. Um, and that makes things, you know, it makes them, some of those conversations really real mm-hmm. like, I need to know if I'm going to be on this place because I need to know whether it's worth my time because I yeah. have bills or I have a life and I want to figure out if this if this is worth the investment of the next five years of my 20s or my 30s or my 40s. It's all of them. Um, mm-hmm. Is it going to be worth it? Because ultimately, I have to make these decisions for my life, and um, I feel like that's a bit of a cultural shift. Um, in itself yeah yeah. It's, yeah it's not always about sacrificing one's life for one's farm
0: yeah interestingly I also think that there's a you know oftentimes the older farming generation is criticized for just being lifestyle farmers uh, and and not not figuring out how to make sure that, that the farm profits, because if it's not economically sustainable, it's not going to get passed on. You know, a lot of people aren't farming or a lot of people my age aren't farming because they saw their parents working 80 hours a week for not much, you know, for something less than a living wage. And they don't want any part of that. Uh, and and the, a lot of the newer generation of farmers, I think see both. They see, the healthiness of the lifestyle in that, um, you know, you're connected to land connected to place, which has quite a bit of social value as well, uh, as, and they see the necessity of a farm business being financially viable. And I think the combination of those two things is, uh, is proving to be productive.
1: I think so too. Starting it's not just
0: idealism. That. You know, there's, there's a there's idealism plus the practicalities of needing to make money. Uh, and, and that's a, a winning combination in my mind.
1: I agree. Has the audience for this changed over time? And and how has it changed if it has?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I I have really I would say focused on two target audiences. One, the natural resource professional who, you know, has a desk job or whatever we call it now in sometimes regulating or uh, providing technical assistance to the farmer and the rancher, and then the other audience is the rancher. And I, I feel like uh, both of those benefit from the other's stories. And maybe one unexpected outcome of, of working through a podcast is that I'm, I'm more and more convinced that interviewing ranchers and having them tell their stories is, is good for the natural resource professional crowd, both to understand the world of the rancher and also just to get some idea of the complexity of the decision-making that's necessary. You know, I may have the luxury of just being a rangeland ecologist for a university. Uh, my paycheck doesn't depend on whether or not the land responds well to the decisions that I make on it. Uh, for the farmer, it does. And I think uh, Baxter Black has pointed out that the Rancher has to be an expert in uh, this multiplicity of, of knowledge areas. They've got to be a veterinarian and a nutritionist and you know an agronomist to grow food for their animals, as well as a range ecologist that's understanding how the different parts of the landscape interact interact with animals. And of course, you have to be a sociologist and a psychologist in order to work with all of the people that have you know, some, has some influence over what happens in your day-to-day life. And yeah, uh, yeah maybe just one more comment. Uh, Ken Tate, who is a, a range water quality guy with University of California Davis Extension, has said that in some of the surveying they've done with ranchers, the things that keep ranchers up at night are not the cost of alfalfa hay, or you know whether to graze this pasture next. It's some of the less tangible stuff, uh, like regulations and the social conflicts that are often present. You know whether it's public land or private land. It's all of that more fuzzy stuff that keeps people awake at night, uh, and uh, those kinds of problems cannot be addressed by a financial workshop where we sit them down for three hours, you know, do some PowerPoint presentations and then have them run through a worksheet. Those things require this mental labor that we've been talking about, uh, you know, where we begin to untangle a bit of what's going on in the world and, and make good decisions about it. And that, that requires, being able to do that mental labor requires strengthening your brain. And I think listening to long form podcasts where you're hearing other people's stories and hearing, uh, you know, scientific information, sociological information being communicated through a different format than just straight up bullet point teaching is particularly productive. So I, I like what you're doing and I wish you the best.
1: That was just a lovely conversation with Tip, and I—I I kind of love I extra love um, that in hour-long conversation format, we—it was totally appropriate to wind around a few uh, different topics, and—and um, and I did think that it was probably pretty meta for somebody who's out doing chores, listening to a podcast, talking about people out doing chores or driving in the truck. <laughs> so I hope that made you laugh in the way that I I thought about it if I were to be out doing chores listening to a podcast. Um. Anyway, uh, uh, Tip's uh, podcast, The Art of Range, um, it's in the show notes is the link. It's an excellent podcast. I really enjoy it as well. And uh, it there's a lot there to learn, um, particularly if you're in a range ecology. I think there's it's a tremendous resource for that. So I also dropped um, all the book references, and, um, and those links are in the show notes so that you can, um, if you want to do a deep dive into some of the things that uh, Tip mentioned, uh, referenced, and um I just wanna say thank you again for listening. Um thank you, feel free to leave comments. Um we we can take reviews, we can do audio messages, um tell your friends, share it around, uh buy me a cup of coffee if you wanna do so. All of that is able to be done at the choosingtofarm.com website. And uh hope you have a great day. And uh here's Chris to play us out we